We have been studying the life of David this semester. But I want you to understand, the reason we're studying the life of David is so that we could get a better understanding and see more beautiful, more powerful, more rich pictures of the God of David. As I talked about last week with the David and Goliath story, the point of the Bible is first and foremost about God and about his grace. And the reason we know that is because in Genesis chapter 3, we read of the fall of mankind, sin coming into the world. The promise was death, but God postpones that death. And the Bible goes on. The story goes on. Genesis 4, Genesis 5, Genesis 6, all the way through until the one promised in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, the Messiah, the one we know as Jesus of Nazareth, comes. And on the cross, he puts to death, death itself. As C.S. Lewis said, at that point, death begins working backwards. That is the story of the Bible. It's the point of the Bible. And thus, when you look at the life of David, what you really are doing is looking at God in response to the brokenness of sin in David's life and in the world of David's time. And we come tonight to look at another slice of that. We actually are going to jump way ahead in the story because the story of David in the Bible occupies 1st and 2nd Samuel. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's just one scroll, Samuel. But we have split it into two because along the way, it was hard to, to, to sort of have it in one big scroll. It gets it's split up. But it's really one unified work, Samuel. And we're now in your English Bibles in chapter 6 of 2nd Samuel. So I know last week we were in 1 Samuel 17, now we're all the way up in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And what's happened that we're skipping over is lots of stuff. For one thing, you know, David uh, beats Goliath, right? And you would think everything would be great. I mean, he was promised that he would get to marry the king's daughter and that he would, you know, get all these riches and all this stuff. Didn't quite work out that way. Um, Saul began to hate David and eventually tries to kill him and chases him all around. Um, eventually Saul and his son Jonathan are killed and then David ends up taking over and becoming the rightful king now publicly where he had been anointed privately now he is publicly recognized as the king of Israel and in 2 Samuel chapter 5 right before this David finally is able to defeat the Philistines who are you know kind of the great enemy at this point in the Bible story um, the people that are trying to wipe out Israel and thus wipe out the seed line of the Messiah and stop that promise of Genesis 3.15 ever coming to be realized. That, uh, those people have been, have been finally dealt with in 2 Samuel 5. Now we come to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And it's a fascinating story. Um, it's, they're part of the story that we love where David dances before the ark of the Lord with all his might, and a lot of people really love that story, but there's also this weird story that everybody hates where this guy Uzzah is there as they're carrying the ark on this cart and, it, and one of the oxen stumbles and it looks like the, the ark of the covenant, this glorious thing is gonna fall and he reaches out his hand to steady it and he's struck dead on the spot. And we don't like those kind of stories in the Bible. But they're both in 2 Samuel chapter six and actually seeing them both together gives us a fuller picture of the God 
of Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, David, and the God who is incarnate in Jesus, and the God who wants to know us even tonight. We need both of these pictures, the trembling and the rejoicing, the dancing and the death, to really understand God and to understand the good news that Christians call the gospel. So let's look at this story. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Follow with me. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing. David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, you know, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites. Both men and women and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, 
It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to stories like this and we go, what in the world is going on? But Lord, this is your word. And through this word, we come to understand who you are and what you're about. We pray that you'd open our eyes to see that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the way we're going to get at this tonight is we're going to ask kind of a series of questions that are going to take us through this story. I love preaching the stories, and I think it's great to just sort of follow the story as it unfolds. What is the ark anyway? You guys have all seen the movie, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark. So you probably have some kind of picture, and that's actually about what it looks like. It's a box. It's made of acacia wood, very precious wood. It's covered in gold, both inside and out. It has a very kind of elaborate um, box top to it, on which is what we call the mercy seat. And it, and it, it had uh, rings where you could put poles to carry it with these poles. And um, it was about three and a half feet by two feet by two feet. Right? Not huge, but very precious, very significant thing. But here's the fascinating thing about the ark. If you read carefully, now this doesn't always come out in the English translations, I will tell you this. But if you read carefully, the ark is regularly associated with God himself. I'll give you a good example is in Numbers chapter 10. Verse 35 and verse 36. This is in the days of Moses. And it says this, whenever the ark set out, because the ark would go in front of God's people when they were sort of going into battle, said whenever the ark set out, Moses said, rise up, O Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. And whenever the ark came to rest, he said, return, O Lord. To the countless thousands of Israel. Actually, that's not a very good translation. It actually says, return, O Lord, as the countless thousands. In other words, the Lord himself is like an army of thousands. Do you see what Moses is saying? Moses isn't calling the ark the ark of the Lord, like an extension of his personality. He's saying the ark is God. And that's actually not an unusual designation of the ark. And unless you understand this, this story tonight isn't going to make much sense. Um, earlier in 1 Samuel, before David even comes on the scene, there's a, a section in 1 Samuel 4 through 6, 4, 5, and 6, three chapters that we call the Adventures of the Ark of the Covenant. It's, it's a great, it's a fascinating little story because basically God's people after Moses' day, they began to kind of treat the Ark like it's this automatic superpower weapon kind of like the Nazis wanted to do in the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie, right? In a sense, they're sort of echoing what actually happened in the Bible with God's people. They began to think that they could use it any way they wanted, for whatever they wanted, without, without honoring God or his ways with it. And so eventually, as they're sort of using it, not in faith, but just sort of as this sort of magical uh, instrument, it gets taken by the Philistines, the Philistines put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. 
And they set the ark there in front of Dagon in sort of this posture of subservience to their God. And the next morning, the Dagon statue is on its face. The story goes on. Eventually, God gives these sores to all the Philistines. First, he sends rats among them. And then he gives them, I think the, the, most of the English translations say ulcers, but it's actually a little more graphic in the Hebrew. They're giant bleeding hemorrhoids. And it's fascinating. They actually make little gold hemorrhoids and golden rats to try to sort of get power over this thing that's causing all these problems in, in Philistia. Uh, eventually that doesn't work. So they put the thing on a cart and they basically let the, the, the oxen take it away. And it's fascinating. In that section, 1 Samuel 4, 5, and 6, half of the time it says this in the Hebrew, the ark of the Lord. But half the time, there's no of. It simply says, the ark, the Lord God. The point is, the ark communicates the presence of God. This is really what the Bible understands sacraments to do. And I know in sort of the North American church, a lot of people have a very low view of the sacraments. They just think of it as something to remember something that happened. But biblically, actually, there's more going on than that. Sacraments communicate the presence of God. And that's what this ark does. It reveals, actually, several important things about God. Let me just highlight these real quick. First, it symbolizes that God is the sovereign king. Um, actually, in First Chronicles, you know, um, Chronicles is, is a book that kind of goes over some of the same material that Samuel and Kings talk about. And in Chronicles, you get a little different perspective. Chronicles is actually emphasizing that God will be faithful to his covenant even though his people were a disaster. Jo you know, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings are giving a rationale for why God's people eventually are sent into exile. But Chronicles is written to people who are already in exile to say to them, God has not given up on you. And so it's interesting to see the two different um, takes on some of the same stories. But anyway, over in Chronicles, um, the ark is actually called God's footstool. And in, in this culture, in this world of, of the ancient Near East, only kings sit on thrones and footstools. So when it talks about the ark as being God's footstool, it is emphasizing that he is the sovereign king. And in Jeremiah chapter 3, the ark is associated with God's throne, his very throne. It also symbolizes, though, not only that he's the sovereign king with a footstool, but it symbolizes that he's a God of mercy and reconciliation because the very heart of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament where God's people, their sins would be covered over by blood sacrifices, pointing eventually to the sacrifice of Christ that was to come. The, the very place that that happened was what we call the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the top of the ark of the covenant. The lid is the mercy seat. That's where blood was sprinkled on the day of atonement once a year. So the ark symbolizes the sovereign God and yet it's also the place where his mercy and his promise to one day wipe away his people's sin is also there at the ark. But it also symbolizes that God is one who speaks because you know what is inside of the ark? Inside of the ark are several important things. I won't go into all of them, but I'll tell you a couple. The tablets that Moses got from God on the mountain. 
where God revealed his ten words. You might know them as the Ten Commandments, but in the Hebrew they say the ten words. Those are in the Ark of the Covenant. The idea, it's a beautiful picture that actually the blood has to cover the law for us to have a relationship with him. Because the law shows us our need for Christ and the blood shows us God's commitment to deal with our sin. Not only that, the manna. There's manna that they put inside the ark and the rod that Moses used, the staff that he used in delivering God's people from Egypt is there inside the ark. So it's a very significant object with all kinds of symbolism. But like I said, the ark has been misused. And in David's day, not only had it been misused, but it's actually been neglected. King Saul, who was the king, the first king of Israel, the king before David, has neglected the ark. He didn't really care about it. He never really used it. And then, actually, even before our story, you find that, um, well, you find this, you know, what happens is, right, they try to bring it into Jerusalem. David wants to inquire of the ark. He wants it to be at the center of his kingdom. He wants God at the center of his kingdom. That's a noble thing. And yet, as they're bringing it the first time, God's anger breaks out against us and he's killed. And what do they do with the ark? They leave it at somebody else's house for a while. I'm not sure we want that thing. But then God blesses these people. And David realizes the ark is not just a dangerous thing. It can also be a great blessing. Again, it's communicating the presence of God. And David's coming to understand something very important. That how you relate to God really matters. Because God can be a curse or a blessing. When we read Psalm 2, that's a kind of a weird psalm. It's actually a coronation psalm. It's a psalm that would be used on the day in which the Israeli king was crowned. And, and there it says, kiss the son lest he be angry. The psalm starts out with basically all the nations scoff and mumble and murmur against God. And the Lord looks at them and he just sort of laughs at them. Who are you? Who are you? And then he says, you better kiss my son, because the only way you'll escape from my anger because of your unrighteousness is if you come to me through my son. Kiss the son lest he be angry. There is a blessing and a refuge for those who seek it. This has always been the message of the Bible. God is never to be trivialized. He is holy, but he is also merciful. And here's what's, what's fascinating, is now, is now the ark is ready to come into the midst of God's people. In, in many ways, actually, the chapter before this, 2 Samuel 5, David finally beats the Philistines. But here in chapter 6, look, here's the point tonight that I want you to get. It's not so much who you're against, 1 Samuel is saying, or 2 Samuel is saying. It's not so much who you're against that defines you. Like, we're against the Philistines, and we finally beat them. Awesome. We're great. No. 2 Samuel 6 says that it's who, capital H, who is in your midst that's what really matters. And I think that's, gosh, what a lesson for the church in our day. Because I don't know about you, but so often it's so distressing that the Christian church in our day and age is known more by what we're against than by who is in our midst. We're known more by boycotts than by what we love. And that's tragic. Because God's people should always be first and foremost known by who is in their midst, not by what they're against. 
Well, let's dig into the story a little more. Why does David want to bring the ark to Jerusalem? I mean, it's kind of a dangerous thing. Do you think he just wants to be blessed like this other guy was blessed? No, it's deeper than that. David wants the Lord at the center of his kingdom. Now, as we go through this study this semester, you're going to find that David does some really wretched, horrible things. Even at times, David is able to be greatly used of God and evil even sort of be a picture for us of what God's love is like. There are times like that, but there are other times where he's really wretched and terrible. But, but here is, is a good thing about David. He wants God, the Lord God, at the center of his kingdom. It's a lot better than Saul. Saul never inquired of the ark. He never cared about God being at the center of his kingdom. But David says the ark can no longer be on the back burner. It needs to be at the heart of what we're about. Uh, Ralph Davis, a great uh, Bible scholar, says this. By bringing the ark to Jerusalem, David is saying that Yahweh's presence, and that's the name whenever you see the, the, the L-O-R-D, all capitals in the Bible, that means that the Hebrew, Yahweh, the covenant personal name of God that he told to his people, Yahweh, um, is, the, is the word there. He says, Yahweh, David says, must be the central focus and reality of his kingdom. The worship of Yahweh, this ruling, reconciling, revealing God, must be at the heart of Israel's life. The ark in Jerusalem proclaims that the majestic, pardoning, speaking God is in the midst of his people. And that is the heart of what it means to be a follower of this God, is that he's at the center. The ark, you see, is God's throne. And David understands that by putting the ark in the middle of his palace, in the middle of his kingdom, in the middle of his city, he's saying that I'm not the point. That I reign as one under the sovereign of all things. And you see a bit of this humility actually in First Chronicles. I don't have time to read it. But First Chronicles adds a detail that's not here in Samuel. That David didn't just decide on his own to bring the ark. He actually asked all the people. He's not a dictator at this point. Later, he kind of becomes an oriental king who does what he wants. We're going to read that when we get to the Bathsheba story. There are times when David is like, yeah, it's good to be the king. I'll do whatever I want. But here, he's humbled. He understands that he's not the king all-powerful. And that's a pretty amazing thing. So that's why he wants to bring the ark. But then we need to look at this part. Why does Uzzah die? Numbers 4 is actually the key to this. Now, if you've taken, you know, Old Testament here... You might not, I don't know what you think about this, but you, sometimes you get told all this craziness about the different sources and the P and the J and the E and all that nonsense, which is really nonsense. We can get coffee sometime and talk about that. You can't make sense of this story in 1 Samuel if you regard Numbers 4 as a P source that's post-exilic. It's not. It's not post-exilic. Numbers 4 was written by Moses, and it's the key to understanding this story, which takes place before the exile. Okay? Numbers 4 says a couple things about the ark and how you're to deal with the ark. Not things that were made up, you know, years and years later, but things that God had told his people. Because God, in his grace, wanted to warn them what they were dealing with with this ark. So Numbers 4 basically says three things. Don't touch it. Don't look in it. And don't carry it in a cart. God was very specific about those th three things. But still, this story is kind of offensive to us, isn't it? I mean, it seems like Uzzah is just trying to help. 
But you know, here's a, I just want to say this real brief aside. This is one of those stories that gives me great confidence in the reliability of the Bible. Because if you were trying to make up a story to induce people to want to believe in the God of the Bible, don't you think you would have edited this one out? I mean, these are the kind of stories you're like, oh, gosh, I wish that wasn't in there. Like, I'm trying to tell my friends about how loving God is, and then this guy just basically touches the ark so it doesn't fall and get smashed, and God's anger burns against him and strikes him down. Good night, right? Right? Do you feel that? But understand the significance that it's not edited out. And that's because the people who worship this God did not feel at liberty to pick and choose among revealed truth. You take this all or nothing. St. Augustine said years and years ago, almost, you know, I guess 1,700 years ago now, that if you believe, when you believe the Gospels, or, no, sorry, I, I mixed this up. i got to get it right at the beginning or I won't be able to get the quote. He says, if you accept what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospels you believe, but yourself. And there are a lot of people who are trying to follow Christianity and figure it out who basically have edited out big sections. And they basically have sort of reimagined God in their own image. Well, God could never do that. I won't let him say that. I won't let him do that. I, I, I just don't like that story. My God's not like that. How do you know what God is like? if you edit out all the stuff you don't like. So, here we have this story. Here's the point. Here's the point. They shouldn't have been carrying the ark on a cart. And that wasn't hidden from them. They knew it. It was clearly forbidden. Not only that, carrying the ark on a cart is what the Philistines did. And God had instructed Israel very clearly. Now, in verse 8, David is mad. But in the Hebrew, it's really clear who he's mad at. He's not mad at God. He's mad at himself because he should have known better. He should have known better, and he knows it. The important lesson here, it's a sobering lesson, but here's the important lesson. Sincerity is not enough. That's about one of the most countercultural things I could say to you in our day and age. God doesn't care how sincere you are. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. You'll never be sincere enough to impress him. You'll never be sincere enough to impress him. God requires perfect obedience from your heart, from the moment you're born to the moment you die, and you can't screw up at all because he is a holy God, and he made you to be a holy people. That's the reality. And this is a story that speaks about that. And it particularly speaks about it in the context of the king of Israel. Because as the story of the kings of Israel unfolds, you're going to find this theme coming out again and again. As goes the king, so goes the nation. And the most important thing for the king is scrupulous obedience to God's revealed word. The king does not get to decide what he wants to do and what he doesn't want to do. He has to obey God's word. He stands in the place of God to care for his people and he doesn't have the option of neglecting God's word. But David does that here, and he knows it. He understands what happened and why. 
Our God is a holy God. He's not to be trifled with. The text here in the Hebrew literally says that Yahweh broke out against Uzzah. That's in verse 8. It's actually the same thing in chapter 5 that it says that God did against his enemies. And here's the thing. If you try to approach the holy God on your own, no matter how well-meaning, God's anger will burn. As we read in Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry. There's only one way to be accepted by a holy God, and it's by putting your hope in the king who actually perfectly obeyed every word from God. Because there was a king that did that. There are times when David gets pretty good and does pretty well, but he's never good enough. His obedience to God's word is never scrupulous enough, but there is a son of David, King Jesus, who said, it's my meat and drink to do the will of my father, even if it means suffering on a cross. That's the one you can put your hope in. There is a king who has scrupulously obeyed every word of God, no matter what it cost him. We dare not trifle with God who is both real and holy. God is not your neat, fuzzy friend in the sky. He's not. He's not. J.B. Phillips years ago wrote a book. The title is still great. It's actually a good book, too, called Your God is Too Small. And one of the reasons people don't experience grace very powerfully is they just trivialize God into somebody who exists to make us happier. And that's not the picture of the Bible at all. You remember that, that's what's said about Aslan in the Chronicle of Narnia books, the beaver says about Aslan? He's not safe, but he's good. He's not safe, but he's good. Ultimately, we need Jesus, the true king who obeys the Lord fully and from the heart. I love this quote from Annie Dillard. Because it just wakes us up from sort of the way we trivialize God. She says this, Why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. What do you expect when you come to RUF? Do you expect to be touched by a God who is alive, a God who is holy. But the story goes on. The story goes on. God doesn't just reveal his holiness here. And to get at that, we ask the next question. Why does David dance? Why does David dance? Verse 12 is key. With verse 12, David realizes, and I love this, somebody whispers it to the king. Somebody sort of leaks this information to the king. Hey, you know uh, that ark that you sent away to that guy's house? Man, things are going pretty well for him. But it's, it's just beautiful the way God does this. He says, the ark can be more than a curse. 
relationship with me, trying to get close to me, being in my presence, it may kill you, but it doesn't have to. That's the point. Being in my presence, God says, it may kill you, but it doesn't have to. The death of Uzzah is not the end of the story for the ark. And this time, they're careful to put it on a pole. They offer sacrifices. They treat it with reverence due God himself. And David worships the Lord who has not forsaken his people with all his might. David understands that the ark is not just dangerous. The ark is the Lord God who wants to be with his people. And this should always be sort of the two dynamics going on in worship. Rejoice with trembling. Right? This guy, W.G. Blakey, says, There are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic, but can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all of our enthusiasm to the world? What makes you dance with all your might? Well, to get at that, let's ask this last question. Why is David's wife, Michael, so mad? Why is she so mad? It's interesting. Three times it mentions that she is the daughter of Saul. You remember Saul? You remember Saul? He was the king of Israel who was a head taller than everybody else. He was an impressive guy. You remember one of the key lessons from the life of Saul? Don't trust appearances. And now we find his daughter cares more about appearances than about being one who would worship the Lord in joy. She cares about appearances. The daughter of Saul. She's hung up on what's right and proper and fair. And because of that, she misses the joy of the good news of the gospel. She doesn't see the ark. She doesn't see that God wants to be with his people and has provided a way, pictured by the mercy seat, for an unholy people to be in the presence of a holy God. All she sees is this king making an idiot of himself. She doesn't realize that as he's dancing with these slave girls, she herself is no different than these slave girls. As, it, as we like to say, we're all, we're all equal before the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? But Sheik doesn't like that at all. She doesn't like that at all. She doesn't want to consider herself one like that. She's so offended that the king would lose his dignity because that's all she has. You understand? When she sees David taking off his royal robes and dancing around, it's a huge threat to her because what else does she have? All she cares about are appearances and her status and her position. And David says, I don't care about that. I have a God who wants to be with me even though I'm an idiot and I didn't do what I was supposed to. And he didn't take the ark away forever. Instead, he said, I still want to be in your midst. David, I love this. He says, I'm not dancing in front of these people. I'm dancing before the Lord. The Lord God is my audience. Michael is consumed by what people think about her. By extension, what they think about her husband reflects on her. But David said, I'm not consumed by what other people think. I'm consumed by the fact that the holy, sovereign God wants to live in our midst and be with us. Doesn't matter whether you're a slave girl or the king of Israel. 
We can all rejoice that the holy God of Israel has made a way for us to be with him. That's worth dancing, he says. And it's worth all of us considering, why do we dance? Are you like a puppet on a string? Dancing so that other people will be impressed? Are you dancing because you don't know how to stop? You're afraid of what might bubble to the surface if you ever try to be quiet for a little while? Why do you dance? And who do you dance for? Have you all seen this movie, Little Miss Sunshine? How many of you all seen this movie? Not a few? Gosh, you're going to have to watch this movie after I tell you about this. Um, it's an amazing movie. Um, there's definitely some rough language, right? So, you know, I'll give you that, that, um, that, that little warning there. But listen, Little Miss Sunshine is this great movie about little moments of grace in the midst of a crazy dysfunctional family. And, uh, and the story is so beautiful, the end of the story. Basically, it revolves around this little girl, uh, Olivia Hoover. Olive, why do I say Olivia? Olive Hoover. She's a sweet, but she's a weird little girl. She's just a weird little girl, right? And, and what's so charming about her, but you're also like your heart breaks. Like if you have kids and like your kids really want to do something that you know they're not going to be very good at, you just really are so afraid like that their little hearts are going to be crushed. And that's what she's like. She's this little girl. She's not beauty pageant material, but all she ever wanted to be was in a beauty pageant. And her family tries to dissuade her and whatnot, but eventually, you know, she gets to go to this little local talent, little uh, local beauty pageant contest. And the winner of that ends up getting disqualified and all of a sudden Olive gets this call and she's invited to this sort of national pageant thing and the family's like oh she's just going to get her heart's dashed they've been trying to let her down easy and then all of a sudden now she's won so what are they going to do and it, the family is an absolute mess but her grandfather says that he's and he's a real mess he's he's like Nothing short of a, a pervert, really. And he says he's just really rough language, and he's just, just really, you know, kind of a crazy old guy. But she loves him, and he loves her. And he undertakes to help her with her talent because she has to have a talent for this uh, pageant. And he decides he's going to help her with a dance routine, right? So the whole family, the whole family gets in the car, and they do this cross-the-nation trek, and it's a crazy story, as you might expect. Lots of mishaps happened. Eventually, the grandfather dies. And you know what they do? They stuff his body in the trunk. I'm telling you, it's a twisted movie, but it's an awesome movie. They stuff his body in the trunk because they don't want her to miss the pageant, and they can't, they can't stop. Like, they're not going to make it if they stop to bury him. So they... Yeah, 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 they can't stop the man. Yeah, so they've, they've got to keep going. So they get there... They get there, and finally, you know, cut, cut, cut out a lot. And we get to the, the beauty pageant, right? And finally, of course, she's the last one to do her talent. And they call her name, Olive Hoover. She comes forward. She grabs the mic from the MC, And she says, I would like to dedicate this dance to my grandpa who taught me these moves. And everybody in the audience is like, aw. And the announcer says, and where is your grandfather, little girl? Oh, he's in the trunk of our car. You know? And before the guy can recover his composure, the music starts. And it's Super Freak by Rick James. You know this song? She's a very kinky girl, the kind you don't take home to mother. And the little girl starts bumping and grinding and doing stripper moves to the absolute horror of everybody in the beauty pageant. She's like, but she's got such joy on her face. She's dancing the dance her grandfather taught her, 
which makes you wonder a lot about the grandfather. But she's doing it with such joy to honor him. And people are going crazy. Finally, the lady running the pageant grabs the dad and says, get your daughter off the stage. And he starts to move towards her. And he's like, Olive, Olive. And then he stops and he says, look at this little girl. And he starts dancing with her. And then one by one, the other people in her family get up and start dancing with her too. And finally, this is what I love most about this story. Finally, the dance ends. And it's not like a Hollywood movie where everybody sees the errors of their ways and starts applauding. No, the sound guy applauds. And then a couple minutes later, this biker dude stands up and goes crazy, which is odd in itself. And, and that's it. But here, listen, you will not be able to watch that scene without bawling. You know why? Because if you watch this movie and you watch this story, you know why she's dancing. And you know about the relationship with her grandfather, what his love meant to her, and you will be undone. You see, to everybody else watching, the, the dance seems incredibly inappropriate. Why would you let your little girl dance like that? Because her grandfather loved her. And she loved him. And what seems so crazy in the eyes of the world is absolutely appropriate expression of love for her grandfather. Now, I'm not saying that you should teach your little girls to do stripper moves. <laughs> but listen, there are, so, there are so many things, there are so many things that we just look at and we just go, oh, come on, really? What does the love of God, what does the love of God compel you to do that you might think seems crazy or that the world would see as crazy? Don't be like Michael. Let the joy of the Lord, the speaking, holy, merciful, redeeming God, and his love for you be at the center of everything you're about. Be at the center of your joy so that you can look out on the world and say, you know what? You just don't get it, and you're not going to. That's what this story is about. The holy God is going to live in the midst of his people, and that's worth dancing about. Let's pray.